Welcome to The Second Degree, your double dose of depravity. It's me, Jack. I'm here with Lex. And if you are listening to this episode in your regular first degree feed on your podcast app, you're probably wondering why we're popping up on a Tuesday. And I'm going to let Lex explain that to you. Right. So for Patreon, we take listener recommendations for the cases we cover. And it's an amazing freedom because we don't need an interview on Patreon. You know, our first degree stories, that is our format. We need an interview. It's driven by that. On Patreon, we can cover whatever we want and whatever our listeners request. So this was a case that was requested by one of our Patreon members, but it's unsolved. So we didn't feel right about keeping that behind a wall. So we thought that we would share it in our main feed so people could A, get a taste of what's on Patreon and B, to spread more awareness about this case that desperately needs solving. Yeah. I mean, you never know who is going to have a piece of information that would be really helpful in trying to solve a cold case. So that's the reason why we wanted to make it available to everybody. But should we just dive right in? I think we should. Why don't you start? Okay, so today's case takes us back to Friday, June 3rd of 2011. The U.S. president at the time was Barack Obama, and topping the Billboard charts was Adele's Rolling in the Deep. Other songs were J-Lo's On the Floor and the Black Eyed Peas' Just Can't Get Enough. And in theaters, X-Men First Class and The Hangover Part 2 and Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. And the setting for today's case is Bloomington, Indiana. And the first English settlers came to the area around 1818. And this group said the area was a haven of blooms, and that's why they gave the city the name it has today. And Bloomington is the seventh largest city in the state and the gateway to scenic southern Indiana. And the city is also home to Indiana University, which was established in 1820. And the first IU class graduated in 1830. And around 45,000 students are enrolled today. So we're talking a big school. That's a lot of students. And as a gal from Long Island, let me tell you, all of the people I graduated with, if they weren't staying in New York and going to like the NYUs or the schools on the island, they were going to Indiana University. I'm not sure why, but it's where everyone from New York and Long Island goes. And there are some reasons that are obvious, right? It's a good school, but it's also a fun school. And it moves up and down on the list of the biggest party schools in the U.S. all the time. Last year, it was ranked number 12. So our firsties who sent us this case are Becky and Kylie. Right. And they actually attended Indiana University with 20-year-old Lauren Spearer. Lauren was born on January 17th, 1991 in Scarsdale, New York. Her parents are Charlene and Robert, and Robert worked as an accountant. Lauren graduated from Edgemont High School in 2009 and was accepted at Indiana University that fall semester. And she was going there to study fashion and textile merchandising. And when she wasn't in school over the summer, Lauren, growing up, would go to this camp called Camp Tawanda, which was in Pennsylvania. And there she met a ton of her friends. And she also met her boyfriend, a guy named Jesse Wolf. And this group that she became friends with, some of them were also enrolled at Indiana University with Lauren. So they maintained this kind of pack of friends at the university as well. And we're looking at pictures of Lauren right now. Honestly, to me, she looks like a California girl. She's like... Very tanned, bright blonde hair, like looks kind of like I did in high school, to be honest. She is adorable. Um, She's smiling huge in every picture. She 
she's there's a picture of her with her mom and dad just like a happy she looks like a happy-go-lucky chick yeah she's so cute and while at indiana university lauren got really involved with the local community she grew up attending a synagogue so jewish congregations in bloomington made her feel at home so she would get involved with that and then during the spring break of her sophomore year she traveled to israel to plant trees for the jewish national fund then after the 2011 spring semester ended Lauren and her friends decided to stick around Bloomington for the summer. Lauren had a reason to stay. Her boyfriend was also sticking around that summer, too, and taking a summer class. So once he was done with the class, the plan was for the two of them to travel back east together. And because a bunch of Lauren's friends stayed at IU for the summer, too, naturally there was some good old-fashioned partying going on. A friend of Lauren's, a guy named Dave Brown, was one of those friends who was there over the summer. So on June 3rd at around 1230 a.m., the two friends decided to head out and have some fun. Well, but I remember that we would do this. When we lived together, when we were in college, we would be up so late. And I am so jealous of all of the energy that we had back then. No, that's what I'm saying. Now I could never, even if I'm up at 1230, I'm like, this is going to screw up my entire day and the next day. But we used to do this all of the time. Oh, to be young, you know, glory days. Totally. So the friends went to a party at the apartment of one of their friends, a guy named Jay Rosenbaum. And Lauren had known Jay for years. They both attended Camp Tawanda together. So after about an hour at Jay's, the group then went to Kilroy's Sports Bar where they kept drinking. Right. And at 2.27 a.m., Lauren then left the bar with a different friend, a guy named Corey Rossman. And they headed towards Lauren's apartment in Smallwood Plaza, which is where her place was. At this point, Lauren and Corey were visually intoxicated and were showing signs of impairment, like stumbling and not being able to walk completely straight. So by this point, Lauren didn't have her shoes on, so she had lost them somewhere. She also didn't have her phone at this point. And Corey was slightly less impaired than Lauren and had tried to carry her on his shoulders to get her to keep moving in the direction of home. So, and as they approached Lauren's complex, four male students noticed them um, and ultimately approached them. And the four students had become alarmed seeing the interaction between Corey and Lauren because of how drunk that Lauren appeared. Not having the understanding that they were actually good friends and Corey was actually trying to help Lauren get home. So the four students confronted Corey, and things continued to escalate to the point where one of them actually punched Corey in the face. As a result, Corey fell to the ground, and remember, at this time, Corey was really drunk as well. Following the assault, the four students quickly leave. And once Corey got up, they decided to go back to Corey's apartment instead of Lauren's. And they arrived there just before 3 a.m., and as they went up the stairs towards Corey's apartment, he reportedly got sick. Corey's roommate, Michael Beth, was awake and he noticed them outside the apartment. And Michael helped get both of them inside and he helped put Corey to bed. And Michael offered Lauren to stay the night, but she said no. She wanted to keep partying. She wasn't ready for the night to be over. And I want to make clear that, like, I've been this person before. Oh, yeah. Um, When we had that energy that we used to have when we were 19, 20, 21, you couldn't stop me. You know, I remember nights when Jack and I lived together in college, like we'd be up to like 4 a.m. doing oh, whatever, many, talking, many times. playing a card game, just like everything's so interesting and you have so much energy and there's a million reasons to want to stay up. It's just absolutely right now that sounds like hell, but I remember doing it. So Lauren's like, no, I want to keep going. And she asked Michael to come with her to come, you know, keep this party going. 
but he didn't want to. So concerned for Lauren's safety, Michael called their friend, Jay Rosenbaum. Remember, they went to Jay's party earlier. And he's like, hey, man, can you look after Lauren? But before Jay could get to her or get there, Lauren left Michael and Corey's place and headed to Jay's. So kind of intercepted. And luckily, Jay's place was right next door. And Jay immediately noticed how drunk Lauren was. And he noticed a bruise under her eye, and it looked like she had fallen and hit her face. And while Lauren was at Jay's, she borrowed his cell phone and called two other friends, but neither of them picked up their phones. Then at 4.30 a.m. that morning, Lauren left Jay's apartment and headed towards College Avenue in the direction of her apartment complex. Several hours after the sun came up, Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse, sent her a text. And Jesse hadn't gone out the night before, but he knew that Lauren did. And it was then that Jesse got a response. It was from Lauren's phone, but... It wasn't from Lauren. It was actually from an employee at a local sports bar. Remember, Lauren had lost her phone, but Jesse didn't know that yet. And apparently, she left it at this bar. And her shoes were also left in a sandy area outside of the bar as well. Okay, so this is alarming. If you're Lauren's boyfriend, you're worried, right? Like, you yeah. have her phone. That's not good. Um, why wouldn't have Lauren gone back to collect it at some point. Like a lot of questions from this point start to emerge. So Jesse continued to try to contact Lauren through friends to see where she was. Did she pass out on someone's couch? Was she with someone else? But he had no success. There was no sign of her at her own apartment either. And by that afternoon, Jesse couldn't find Lauren anywhere and was getting so worried. And it was around 4 p.m. that day that he reported her missing to the Bloomington Police Department. And remember, Lauren is from New York, and it's in the evening where her family is. And it's then when they get the call from police alerting them to the fact that their daughter was missing. So obviously, her parents are immediately worried and probably sick to their stomachs. Her parents then told police that their daughter had a life-threatening heart condition, and she has to take medication every day for it, so she needs to be found ASAP. The family also gets on the road and makes their way from New York to Indiana to help search for her as well. The following day, they arrived and organized hundreds of volunteers together to search Bloomington three times that day. And these searches would continue every single day after as well, but each search turned up nothing. And this caused fear for Lauren's safety to keep mounting. And as for what the police were doing in their investigation, media coverage of Lauren's missing persons case began immediately and prompted over a thousand tips to come pouring into the local department. And the police had to try to sort the viable ones from the useless ones and do triage on all these tips, essentially. And the police are digging through information that they have access to. And it's then that they learn that Lauren had been arrested for public intoxication before. And that was in 2010, the previous year. So what does that tell us? It tells us Lauren likes to party. She's in college. That's not that weird to me. That's not a violent offense. It's not, you know, a morally bankrupt offense. I'm surprised I never got dinged for that, to be honest, like in my college days. Yeah. So, so, but what is a subtext of this discovery that the police make? Okay. They're like, well, maybe Lauren's okay. Maybe she's partying. We know she lost her phone. Maybe she's with a friend. Maybe she's just a rebellious chick and she's going to turn up just fine. And that, of course, is the hope, right? Lauren's room was also searched. And they found some recreational drugs there, a little tiny bit of cocaine. So again, this might be making the police think, all right, maybe she's fine. Like maybe this is just some college partying kid behavior. And police also learned that 
you know, Lauren had gone to that sports bar where she left her phone and because she wasn't 21, they concluded that she'd used a fake ID to get into the bar that night. Again, all, all these things are pointing to this possibility. Like maybe she's fine. Maybe she's partying. Maybe it's the summer. She doesn't have classes. Anything's possible. Right. So the police spoke to as many eyewitnesses as they could and anyone who encountered Lauren the night that she vanished. One student witness said that they noticed how drunk Lauren was near Smallwood Plaza. They stopped to ask if she was okay, but didn't get a response from her. And naturally, they had spoken to all of Lauren's friends who were with her the night that she went missing. Her friend David, Corey, Corey's roommate Michael, and then their neighbor Jay. And they all told police their story about how things unfolded that night. All of them recalled how drunk Lauren was, but their memories were a little hazy as well because like everybody was kind of drinking. And Corey attributed his faded memory to the student who punched him in the face. Then detectives started collecting video surveillance footage from Lauren's apartment, the bar, and the surrounding businesses. And what limited information police were able to get out of her friends was confirmed through cell phone records and the surveillance footage. The police used all of the information they collected from spotting Lauren in the surveillance footage to create kind of a map and timeline of the entire night in which she vanished. And one piece of footage showed Lauren as she walked into an alleyway around 2.48 a.m. after leaving the bar with Corey. And her keys and her purse were later recovered in that same alley. So this is how intoxicated she was, you know? She left her shoes at the bar. She left her phone. Now she's leaving her keys and purse there. Um, So police are gathering these bits and pieces of this puzzle. But what they were missing was key evidence, whatever that was, which would help them put the full picture into focus. There was still no sign of Lauren. And for her loved ones, panic was really starting to set in, especially given the fact that Lauren needed this potentially life-saving heart medication. Detectives then began asking random people passing by College Avenue if they'd seen Lauren, hoping that someone might have seen her in that area on the night she disappeared. But no one remembered anything. And divers were even sent to search the nearby Lake Monroe. Maybe evidence was there, but they found nothing. Lauren was nowhere. Media coverage was all over Lauren's disappearance from the start. NBC, ABC, and CBS Morning News shows led their newscasts with the story. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children dispatched a rapid response team. I got my teeth fixed yesterday and I can't, I feel like I can't talk. Really? Because they're like, yeah. Get used to it. Just slow down. A Facebook and Twitter page was created and accrued over 100,000 followers combined. Celebrities like Ryan Seacrest, Anderson Cooper, Scott Bayo, and Kim Kardashian all shared news of Lauren's disappearance on their pages. And America's Most Wanted produced a short segment which drew in over 350 various tips. Lauren's family also raised and offered a $100,000 reward for anybody with information. Jim Irsay, who owns the Indianapolis Colts football team, even offered an additional $10,000 for information leading to Lauren's safe return. And Indiana University also set up a $50,000 fund for search efforts. Yeah. I mean, people really came out in force to provide resources to help recover Lauren. Um, Everyone in Bloomington mobilized. Everyone across the country, you know, wanted to help, but it didn't seem to make a difference. There was still no sign of her anywhere. And soon an entire week had ticked by with absolutely zero updates. And sadly, it's at this point that suspicions of foul play really started to creep in. This is no longer, okay, Lauren's probably fine. She's partying. Maybe she's taking some space. 
this is disturbing to anyone who knew her and even people who didn't. I mean, these circumstances are alarming. She would never do this willingly. And let's say hypothetically, she had suffered maybe a medical emergency somewhere in the city. She'd have been found by now. So the possibility that someone had harmed Lauren and was concealing evidence of that harm, that was really the only thing that started to make sense. And of course, this prospect would have been devastating for her family to comprehend. So the question now was, if someone had harmed Lauren, who was it? Where had it happened? And who were the main suspects? During the police's daily press briefings, they announced that there were actually 10 persons of interest that they identified. And this meant there would be quite an investigation. One of those persons of interest was actually Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse Wolf. The police were also taking a close look at the four friends that Lauren had seen that night, David, Jay, Corey, and Michael. And all of them were cooperating with police. But to the family's surprise, all five of them also lawyered up immediately as well. And only some of them agreed to provide DNA samples for testing. Jesse raised some suspicion when he stopped joining the search efforts after just a few days, which struck some people as really weird. Why wouldn't the boyfriend of the missing person want to be involved every step of the way? We've seen this in a lot of different cases. Yeah. Um, and I try to wonder, so if you are innocent and you and you opt out of these searches, I'm trying to understand why. Is it because you're so devastated? Like, I kind of can see, like, if I'm searching ditches, I don't really want to find the body of my partner. You know, I really don't. Right. Like, if that's sort of the tone the search has taken, like maybe it's best that they don't like, what if you're the one, isn't that, wouldn't that be traumatic? Like, I don't know. I kind of understand. Like, I want to believe she's fine. I'm not going to start searching ditches for my girlfriend's body. So I'm playing just devil's advocate. Right. I get it. And then also it's like, also what if you're the one that finds the body too? And that looks suspicious as well. Even if you are innocent. Yeah. There is no, there's no winning. And also it's like, you know, we've talked about this a million times. It's like people act completely different, different grieving and dealing with really traumatic and painful events like this. So it's like you never really know the reasons why people are doing different things. That's a good point. When people have been the ones to found, find bodies, like often that person becomes just a suspect automatically. Yeah, you no know, matter what. And has to be cleared. And if he's the boyfriend and the suspect, like... Already. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of understand that if he's innocent, right? So when the police first questioned Jesse, he told them that he wasn't out with Lauren on the night in question. Because of his summer class, he decided to stay home that night. And he was up late, though. He watched TV all night before falling asleep around 2.30 a.m. And when police checked his alibi, they were able to confirm that he was telling the truth. So the police also questioned Jay. And they're actually conflicting reports on how and whether he was actually cleared. But according to a representative for Jay, his lawyer... He'd apparently passed a lie detector test. I'm not sure if that counts as being officially cleared since yeah. they hold no credence in court. Um, but it's an open case and not all the information is available. So that's what's publicly forward facing in terms of Jay's status in this investigation. And apparently the other two suspects also took and submitted polygraph test results through private administrators. So I think what the release of that information is conveying is that they were quote unquote cooperating. That's what right. they're trying to convey. Right. So then on June 15th, police had recovered new security camera footage and it showed a white pickup truck traveling near Camden Avenue around the same time that Lauren was seen. The truck was seen driving from the same street three times from 4 or 14 in the morning to 4 24 in the morning, which is 
sketchy. Very suspicious. I mean, it's giving Brian Koberger kind of driving. What are you looking for? Back and forth. Yeah, it's it's a little bit weird. That that time of night, like, okay, we're in LA, like the Sunset Strip is a notorious like cruising zone. Some people just drive up and down in their fancy cars to get attention and like holler at girls. Or find this parking. Is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. If you're looking for parking, definitely. But this is sketchy on this street at this time. Yeah, it's really, really weird. So police suspected that the person driving could have been deliberately searching for a vulnerable person, which is really scary. And in the footage, something is laying in the back of this white pickup truck. Right. So right now we're looking at a picture of the truck and there's something white in the back. And we're also looking at a picture of what Lauren was wearing that night. She was wearing a white t-shirt, like a baggy oversized t-shirt. It looks like I can't tell if she has shoes on or if that's her bare feet, if she's already lost her shoes by this point. Um, but she's like then holding like it looks like a white denim jacket or like a linen shirt or something. And then she's wearing like black skinny jeans or leggings. Yeah. I'm, I mean, who knows? I don't know. Who the knows? back of the truck is so grainy that it could be anything, but it it feels a little overt. Like... If Lauren was already in the back of this truck when it was driving back and forth, why would they be driving back and forth? Yeah, that's a good point. You know? I don't know. Anyways, these developments with this white truck are, first of all, haunting. You know, if they were driving back and forth, if they were prowling, that's disturbing. Um, These photos, if that is Lauren in the back of the truck, haunting, disturbing. But it's also sort of a break in the case, right? Um, now they had something to search for, something to hopefully connect to Lauren's disappearance. But with this truck, also a lot of questions emerge. So had Lauren been abducted by a stranger? Had they been spinning their wheels investigating those closest to Lauren who maybe had nothing to do with this? Another question is, who is the owner of this truck? Where is this truck now? There was a problem with their efforts to track down the truck, though. There was no clear shot of this vehicle's license plates. Now, Surveillance footage has gotten a lot more sophisticated since 2011, but this is 2011. And if this is a camera mounted on the side of a building, maybe they were installed in 2008. So we're talking about like 2008 to 2011 level technology. You're going to get grainy shit. You're going to get, you're going to get imagery that you can't necessarily impose and make better to make it useful. Like I know they can do that now, but kind of useless. So at this point, without a license plate, all they had was the make and model of the vehicle to go off of. And they ultimately concluded that it was a white four-door short bed Chevy Silverado or Chevy Colorado. They did a half mile search for this type of vehicle and didn't turn up any new leads. And they didn't turn up any new leads as they expanded their search area either. So it's just another question mark. You know, who is this person? Did this truck belong to just a stranger blowing through town? Or is it someone who just lived outside whatever their search radius was? So as the days turned into months, the number of volunteers looking for Lauren daily began to dwindle. Then in August, with the help of the FBI, police decided to broaden their search. All of Bloomington's trash was dumped at the Sycamore Ridge Landfill. So they decided to sift through all of the trash at the local dump, hoping the answers might be found there. But after nine days of sifting through 4,100 tons of garbage, nothing could be connected to Lauren at all. Meanwhile, students who had been back at their homes over the summer returned to the IU campus for the fall semester. And by this point, the police were no longer providing daily press conferences on the case, and all things just seemed to be at a standstill. 
However, tips did continue to come in, but none of them amounted to anything useful. But here's the thing. The search for Lauren did uncover the bodies of other victims and deceased people. That's how thorough these search efforts were. In fact, 10 bodies across Indiana and Illinois had been found as a result of this searching. All of them were tested, and still none of them proved to be her. By all accounts, the investigation seemed to be slowing to a halt and sadly going cold. Then in February of 2012, an anonymous donation came in, increasing the reward money dollar amount to $250,000. That's a lot of money. But even this kind gesture, even this massive amount of money couldn't restore hope for Lauren's family. And they said to reporters during interviews, you know, this is our new normal. They even hired a private investigator to start looking into Lauren's case. Soon, it had been a year since Lauren had disappeared. Lauren's family went on the Today Show, where her father spoke out against Lauren's friends, the one she'd been with that night she vanished, suggesting that the family suspected their involvement to some degree. So Lauren's family believed that her friends could have done something if they thought that Lauren was so inebriated. And apparently a lot of people agreed, because this time a new law was working its way through the Indiana legislature. Then in June of 2012, the state passed the Lifeline Law. It was introduced because college students were frequently injured or losing their lives as a result of alcohol poisoning. And this law passing wasn't only a result of Lauren's case. Apparently, many students had been hurt and found themselves in dangerous and similar situations. Basically, the law gives immunity to people who are especially minors for any crimes involving underage drinking. And the immunity is an incentive for people to call 911 or get medical assistance for somebody else having an alcohol-related emergency. So the family believed that the law might have encouraged her friends to do something before Lauren walked away from them. Right. And I think the implication here is also that one of the theories was that Lauren was drunk and suffered some sort of medical emergency, whether that be an overdose, an alcohol overdose, maybe recreational drugs played a part, maybe her medical condition played a part in that instead of getting help, like everyone was afraid of getting in trouble. So they concealed her death instead right. of calling 911. Right. So that's sort of the suggestion here. And I think that ties into the suspicions that Lauren's family had of her friends. Right. So meanwhile, as Lauren's family hopelessly watched their daughter's case turn ice cold, they continued to feel desperate to see someone be held accountable for what happened. So in 2013, they filed civil lawsuits against Corey, Jay, and Michael, accusing them of negligence and for giving Lauren more alcohol after she was already intoxicated. But the suits were eventually dismissed. A federal judge determined that Michael had no duty to care for Lauren. For Corey and Jay, the same judge said there wasn't enough evidence available for a jury to decide whether the two could have prevented whatever did happen to Lauren. And that evidence that was missing to make that determination was, of course, Lauren herself. And in the following years, multiple tips and theories would create new leads. In April of 2015, another Indiana University college student went missing after a night at Kilroy's bar, and the circumstances were really similar to Lauren's. The student, her name was Hannah Wilson, was leaving the bar and ordered a taxi. And sadly, Hannah's body was found the next morning about 23 miles away from Bloomington, and at her feet was a cell phone. Authorities tracked that back to a man named Daniel Messel. He was arrested, charged, and eventually convicted with bludgeoning Hannah to death. But besides the circumstantial similarities, there were no solid connections that could be made between Hannah and Lauren's cases. 
And a second theory emerged involving an Indianapolis biker gang called the Sons of Silence. So one of its members was a man named Robert Strange. And a tip from one of Strange's relatives came in. And that tip was that Strange had shot Lauren over an argument about drugs and money. And it's unclear as to whether the tipster was claiming that Strange had confessed to this or if they knew it some other way. Um, This relative then accused Strange of burying her body on his property. Police looked this strange guy up, and he didn't have a criminal history, but apparently was rumored to be kind of an enforcer within this biker gang. So to be an enforcer, that kind of means if some muscle needed to be used in dealings with this biker gang, this was the guy to do it. So police spoke with him, and he denied having any involvement with Lauren's disappearance. Plus, you know, Lauren's cell phone data conflicted with this theory. Um there was no suggestion that he had, she had ever been near his property. And then in January of 2016, there was yet another theory. The FBI and police looked into a 35-year-old man named Justin Waggers, who had recently been arrested for indecent exposure in front of a minor. Justin was also a registered sex offender after a 2005 incident involving sexual misconduct with a child. And as far as how he could be connected to Lauren, first, Justin had a criminal history And second, he owned a white pickup truck, and this was similar to the one last seen in that surveillance footage. So authorities raided his family's property in Martinsville. They used cadaver dogs, excavated the land, and towed his truck. And if they found anything to link Justin to Lauren, that information has not been released to the public. The last thing we know about Justin is that police did obtain a DNA swab from him for Lauren's investigation, and any information would most likely be released if charges against Justin are ever filed. So throughout this entire time, police authorities were not the only ones receiving tips. By June of 2016, the family's private investigator had set up a website called findlauren.com. Through that site, someone suggested that police look into Corey Hammersley. Again, different Corey than the one who had been with Lauren the night she disappeared. Corey Hammersley was a student athlete at IU, and he attended the university at the same time Lauren had. And a year after she went missing, there was an incident on the campus involving Corey. So apparently he had been high on drugs and he walked out of his apartment in only a hat, meaning he was naked except for a hat. And he fired a th- he fired 32 bullets into a random house nearby. The police were called and then he turned the firearm towards them and started shooting at police as well. Um, there's photos of this. It looks like a fake photo. It's also during, it's just bright, bright and sunny outside. He's obviously having a mental health um, episode. Yeah. I mean, this is not normal behavior. I mean, I don't know anything about his history. Maybe he was a violent guy. Maybe this was just escalating behavior, but I don't think someone, this isn't the way someone would do this if this was deliberate. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, he was arrested as a result of that incident, and he was given 24 years in jail. But the question is, right, so certainly he's capable of violence. He shot at a bunch of people and homes. But did he have any connections to Lauren? So while behind bars, another inmate came forward and said that Lauren's photo at one point had come up on their TV. And apparently, Corey looked at the TV and said, man, I knew the guys that did that. Corey Hammersley went on to say that Lauren had died at a house party while drinking and taking ecstasy, and this led to an overdose. And according to this inmate, 
Hammersley said that people at the party freaked out and then took her body to the Ohio River to dispose of it instead of calling 911. An FBI investigator and the private investigator interviewed Corey, and he denied having any involvement. The claims he made about knowing the guys who did this has not resulted in any charges. The investigators did recognize an overdose could have been possible given Lauren's recreational and occasional drug use and her heart condition, which could have further contributed to the overdose. Lauren's case has gained even more attention as the years go by. Over 3,000 tips have been received, but no suspect or charges have ever been announced. Police have said they have surveillance video of Lauren that they haven't released yet, but they've never said why. And now we're trying to, like, I would normally criticize that, but given what we've seen in the Long Island serial killer investigation with the police releasing surveillance video of one of the victims very strategically when they already had the suspect identified, you start to learn why perhaps they're holding things back, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially if they believe that whoever did this to Lauren would be monitoring the case really closely. Like that's why they did it strategically in the Long Island serial killer case. So maybe they're hoping that that will be key in identifying the person eventually. But Regardless, like all of this has been so frustrating for Lauren's family. I cannot fathom it. They feel as though they've been shut out of the investigation. Um, They continue to give interviews, even though they believe their daughter is no longer alive. They never believed, however, that Lauren was abducted. They believe that someone who knew Lauren was involved somehow, which is a really chilling thing to believe, you know? Yeah. And here's some more info from our firsties, Becky and Kylie, who did submit this story. And they said, we were one year behind Lauren at IU and her disappearance led to a serious amount of safety practices on campus, as well as harsher ID policies at the bars. Two forms of ID and bartenders and liquor stores would quiz you on the info from your ID to ensure that it was yours. Lauren's parents are so sweet and we continue to follow their page for updates. I always wonder what happened and search for her name often hoping for updates. It's a devastating case. And it's like the partying that Lauren was doing is so typical. I mean, think about how many other students she encountered that night doing the exact same thing as her. Um, But everyone's circumstances are different. And it just takes that weird cosmic shuffling of the deck moment to put you in proximity with danger. And you can never anticipate it. And she did not deserve this. You know, everyone does this kind of partying in college. So if you know anything pertaining to Lauren's case, please visit the website findlauren.com. Keep this case in the spotlight. There's always hope for these cases to be solved. And on the Find Lauren website, you'll find the Facebook and Twitter pages that keep any developments in the case current, and you can follow it there. You can also contact the Bloomington Police Department with any information. 